Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Amanda Anayati. Amanda is a cultural strategist and author and founder and CEO of The Coherence Lab. With a career that spans two decades, Amanda has worked with individuals, companies, organizations across a broad range of industries to envision new futures and to design and launch inclusive, impactful, and high-performing cultures, roadmaps, and strategies. Amanda's book, Seeking Serenity, the 10 new, new Rules for Health and Happiness in the Age of Anxiety explores the science of stress and what it teaches us about creating thriving cultures, companies, and communities. And it's a real pleasure for me to invite, to um, welcome you rather, to the deep dive. How are you? Thank you so much. It is lovely to be here and I'm just thrilled to be talking to you today. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is a, a conversation I've really been looking forward to. I had the chance to get your book just last week. You sent me a copy and I and I appreciate that. And I spent time with it over the weekend. And so I have a, a lot to go through. And it's interesting because I feel like this really, I could have two conversations with you. I could have a solely a book conversation and I could have a life conversation, a life story conversation. And I'm, what I'm going to attempt to do is combine them because as I as I read the book and and your story is is interwoven in the narrative of the book, so it it in in one way it's hard to divorce one from the other, but I, I found them both so engrossing that I, I really wanted to find a way through separating them. So I guess what I'll really start with is the background. So kind of give me a sense of, you know, what led you to where we are right now in your life? Because again, that personal narrative is such a big part of this. So I want to start with the personal narrative. Thank you for that. And yes, it does feel like I've lived several lifetimes. Um, But in my very first lifetime, I was a city girl um, growing up in the city of Tehran, dead center going to school every day, going around the corner with my dad to go to, you know, what we might in New York call the bodega um, and getting fresh bread and getting these little jars of cream caramel and eating Mars bars and just a regular life growing up um, until I was 10 years old. And then things started to shift. The uh, environment started to get a little hectic. There were riots out in the street, um, people burning down buses and um, really protesting against the rule of the then Shah, who was the king. Uh, Some people loved him because he had been trying to modernize the country. Some people hated him because they felt that he was tyrannical, which, you know, has now emerged that he did have some brutal practices. And, and so I was forced to flee without my parents. 
on one of the very last normal flights out of Iran. I remember being at the Tehran airport and everyone was, you know, jostling and trying to get to a gate. And it, you know, was so, and I was holding on to my dad's hands because I was so afraid I was going to get lost in the sea of human beings. And then being turned over to this woman, you remember back in the day, there were these blue hats and these blue outfits and this blonde woman with a bun. I remember it so clearly. Um, got on one of the last flights out of the country before the airport closed down and then spent five years going from relative to uh, boarding school to a distant relative to an acquaintance uh, before my parents were able to get out. And so in the nine, in the 80s, in the mid 80s, we all arrived in America. It was my parents uh, and me, who is now you know a teenager. And my brother, who had been living in L.A. all along, he was a little bit older. He was already in school here and sort of tried to recombine as a family. And uh, thus began my journey here in America as someone who was not quite Iranian, not quite European, Western European, and not quite American. None of those, but all of those. And uh, yeah, that's my <laughs> that's my childhood in a snapshot. Yeah, but, you know, I think... The reason why I said like we can spend so much time there is because I, I find like when we're telling our personal narratives, they're our own narrative. And so in a way, we give them sort of like this sort of like, oh, yeah, everybody did that. Right. And it, in reality, the, the story is um, quite remarkable, not because it has this Western fetishization of the immigrant story. But when I heard your story, what it really made me think about is how we make sense of ourselves relative to community and how that community can be in, in some ways um, very disparate. And I think that language has become, you know, when you hear like the UN and other organizations talk about like, oh, we're a global community that's been sort of weaponized, right, by by conservatives and and you know reactionaries. And but yet, when I hear that story, and I think of others, I, I find that we're really talking about something more than a physical journey. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time with you, kind of, you know, thinking through being from a place, but not of a place and, and how you think that's kind of affected you. That is so brilliantly put and astute. And of course, you are an anthropologist and a cultural anthropologist. So uh, you probably see it on a whole other level. I never really had the language and never certainly wasn't able to describe it as beautifully as you did. Um, I once heard the author Colin McCann refer to himself as a global mutt. And, you know, of course, I also have heard this language of people who are global citizens being derided. Now, it's not now, you know, you talk about globalism and people look at you. It's the same way that a lot of language has been muddied so that we're so confused as to what it actually means. And, you know, that comes up against a lot of the emerging research and certainly what's been a big part of my work, both with individuals as a writer and with corporations, but also you know, as myself in, in my own path, this idea of belonging and how it's so central to your sense of healing and well-being and 
how you even move in this world. You know, you just talked about the stories that we tell ourselves. And sometimes those stories are a lot more complicated. Um, it's really wonderful to be able to fit into a narrative that is clean because you have your stories handed down to you from generation to generation. You know, there are some of us in this world that don't really fit into those narratives. Sometimes I have these good narratives in my head and sometimes, you know, not so great ones. I mean, I, there's a lot of loneliness and a lot of this other writer calls onlyness, you know, being the only person who has walked that journey and it can be quite a struggle. But yes, I did have to, in my life, begin to look around to see things that were not exactly me, um, but were sort of me uh, and kind of looked like me and sometimes moved in the world like me and then hold on to those narratives in way you know, for my for sometimes for dear life. Right. And uh, and I really do hope eventually, that we move to a place where we begin to see the through lines and the commonalities and that we begin to expand our definitions of family and community. We're in a very interesting time right now. It's really hard to do that because we, for legitimate reasons or for not so legitimate reasons, are hunkering down in our senses of identity. So it's really hard to be someone who 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 traverses, you know, who crosses a bunch of boundaries or, and has in order to have family, in order to have belonging, um, because I'm often told this is not your place. This is not your place. Um, remember that children's book? Are you are you my mama? Have you ever heard that? You know, this this bird goes around, you know, loses her family and then goes around and asks all kinds of things. Are you my mama? Are you my mama? So I feel like my whole life or most of my life has been this place of trying to find my community and my place in the world and with, you know, varying degrees of uh, success. And, you know, so much of this is very much a, a journey that doesn't really end. And identity, again, I, I mean, I, you so presciently brought that to the surface. You know, we're, we wrestle with, the idea of identity and, you know, the United States in particular, I think wrestles with that more than, than most, <laughs> than most places, but yet we're all here trying to make sense of it. And, and so I want to, you know, spend a little bit of time on, on the identity question, because one of the things that, that came up when we had like a kind of a short introductory call you know, in, in the lead up to recording this was, you know, you spending time at, at Howard, for example. And, you know, I went to Howard as an undergrad and, you know, I, I believe you went there for law school, correct? So, and, and but you talked, you know, very, I'll, I'll use the word emotionally, maybe you'll have a, a different word for it, but you, you talked quite a bit about why you chose to go to go to Howard and what you found when you were there. And it, and it really struck me because at the core of that were the things we've been talking about so far, like like community and identity. So I, I want to, you know, use this as a as a chance to kind of interject the Howard piece of the of the story as it pertains to those two things. The happiest years of my life were at Howard University, and it's weird to say that about a place, right? I mean, I've lived a life and have done 
some pretty remarkable things. I have two beautiful children. It was really interesting because, well, let me tell you, there are things that you don't necessarily notice as you're going through them that when you're older and have read more stories and have heard more stories and have gained wisdom, you're able to go back and name them. One of the things that I now realize is how much I had been othered, right? That word othered, even going back to my earliest days as a child, because I you know, in Iran, a country that is pretty diverse and where people look pretty diverse, I happen to be a browner Iranian. And now looking back at the earliest things that people used to say to me of a reflection of my outer appearance, of my perceived beauty, of the way, it all made reference to the fact that I had browner skin that I, you know, had wavier hair, um, then I guess what was then inculcated in even in Iran, uh, as what was the standard of beauty. And I look back at that, and I realize, and you know, my daughter, who's was born in America, who is, you know, half Mexican American and half Iranian, she really observes to me. Now, she has the language at 16. How, whenever I meet Iranians, they say, Oh, you don't look Iranian. And so even in that sense of, you know, some place where I was born, where I was there as a child, where I, you know, probably fall well within the spectrum of what Iranians look like, had been, in a sense, made to feel like I was different, like I didn't belong, like maybe the comments weren't so uh, kind always about my skin and my brownness. And so I was in Europe where no one looked like me, right? For five years, I went from Holland to France to England to Scotland to Germany. Very few people back then, you know, pretty homogeneous culture. And then came to America where I was like, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm from. I don't even know what my culture is supposed to be like. And so trying to understand as a teenager well, who am I, right? That's when you're trying to understand, do I look like this person? Do I look like that person? And at that point, when I was in LA for those first few years, I was told on a regular basis how ugly I was. I'm telling you, as a child, I heard you are ugly, maybe a good once a week at, at, at least, right? As a, as a teenager here in America. So I was trying to understand, well, who am I? What do I look like? And I would watch TV. And back then there were no Latinas, there were no Puerto Ricans, there were no Dominicans. You know, I would see African-American women. And back then I would look at objectively at the images of African-American women on television, you know, rarely in magazines, but sometimes and on billboards. And I would think to myself, well, that person is my skin tone. That person kind of has hair like me. That person is beautiful. I must also have the capacity to be beautiful. And this is why representation in all of our media is so important. Because if I had just waited, I mean, you know, this was a few decades ago. If I was going just by the, the what I was hearing, and what I was, you know, experiencing, then I would have moved through my entire life 
really hating every aspect of myself, my nose, my hair, my skin color, my tone, the fact that, you know, I get ashy. I mean, all of these things that were unique to me that no one else seemed to be experiencing. But because I was lucky enough to have had, uh, to have been welcomed in community with people of African descent here in America, I really had the gift, was given the gift, was given the grace of being able to see things about myself and being able to walk this path of seeing myself in ways that were, you know, really uh, good for me, that were conducive to my growing as a human being. And when I was at Howard, I just felt like I belonged. Um, It was community. It was a home. There were people from the islands. There were people from south side of Chicago. There were people from Cleveland, you know, and it was just we were all in it. And there were some Latinos and there were a couple of white people. And but it was a place where I was surrounded by a lot of comfort and gifted a lot of community. I still look back at those times. I look at my experience in America in quite a longing way. Now, things are complicated right now right? Given everything that's happened, and it's quite understandable, there is a real delineation of community. And so for those of us who fall in the in-betweens, who don't necessarily fit neatly into one or the other, we're having to create new places and new pathways and, you know, at times just standing by ourselves. But I, I do remember those days and I do remember Howard. And I remember the the beauty and the brilliance and the excellence and the musicality and the sense of like DC as our home in ways that I, you know, I, that will stay with me for a lifetime. No, that's, um, that's really beautifully put. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't ask that with the um, expectations of getting like the Howard Love Fest. I know people who are, <laughs> who are regular listeners and that know me pretty well know that I, you know, represent for Howard pretty, pretty hard. So that wasn't a setup question, but I was really proud to hear that reaction because that is so important. And those in-between spaces, you know, even in communities that are seemingly homogeneous, they're in-between spaces, you know, Um, and many of us navigate our identity not just by the schools we choose or or things like that, but through many, many other things. So it, it was, it's heartwarming to hear, you know, you had that sort of relationship with, with Howard. That means that we're doing, that we're doing our job. And, you know, there's a lot of cruelty that happens when we're young, right? That, that people will just say things that, you know, they last with us for a really long time. So to be able to navigate that and, and see a place for yourself through representation, I think is, is critical. Right. It makes such a difference as to how we can move in the world as as confident and as confident and, and fully actualized people, you know, which is again one of those lifelong journeys, right? Yes, yes. And I and I will say, you know, I have learned a lot in the decades that have come. I think there was a period in my life where I so desperately wanted to shoehorn myself into the black community. And now understanding that the journeys are different and having gained a lot of life lessons and more wisdom and humility about how the stories, our stories are all going to differ, right? 
and that there are ways for me to connect and be grateful and and be able to really uh, understand my place within uh, or my relationship within a community without wishing that it you know I could just be that um, that I could be anything that I you know I could it, it, it's a lot you know a, a lot of my clients talk about the number one thing my clients talk about is helping their people become comfortable with ambiguity. And I think there were years when I was much, much younger when I just couldn't, I didn't want the ambiguity. I just wanted to fit neatly into something. And I think the lesson for me is that that is probably not going to happen for me ever, right? Like I, I, I'm a part of like a very different new tribe of people coming up. Um, I hear Gen Z talking about themselves when they talk about gender fluidity and all of the ways in which they don't want to necessarily fit into neat buckets. And they're pretty comfortable with the ambiguity. I still struggle with it. And and it's easier for me to teach it and talk about the elements of it and sometimes harder to live that path. But but yeah, I really, I, I don't know. Have you been as proud, I mean, with the past few years with the Howard alums that are just doing incredible things out in the world. I just, I'm so, so proud of like 20 year old me who made that decision and went cross country. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, that, that ambiguity, I always look at it like there's a scale, right? And it comes to us through our, you know, ourselves, our community, the stories, you know, how, what boxes do we, do we fit into, if any, to what degree, when, you know, um, you know, I think many of us um, that come from communities of color are, are familiar with things like code switching, you know, the, you know, how do we fit into particular spaces? And, you know, a, a lot of that is often a reaction to making others feel comfortable with us rather than, than the other way around. So when you when you share the stories about ambiguity, I think we all deal with that to a certain degree, and we all have our individual way in which we manage it. Yes. But and so there's uniqueness, and there's also common ground as well, right? That that degree piece is really really critical, and it kind of gives me a segue into spending a little bit more time with the book again, seeking serenity, and you know I, I think the notion implied by the book it instantly makes me feel p- peaceful which is a which is a good thing because you're you're really tying together this idea of serenity but also as it relates to stress and and you spend quite a bit of time kind of detailing your own journey with stress defining it um contextualizing it within this this roadmap so i i really don't I don't want to give it all away, but I want to give you a, an a opportunity to share with us how you landed on stress. Oh my goodness! As a thing, and how that led to the book. So you know, you thought my journey ended when I got to America, but um, in fact, you know, we came to LA. It was during a time when everybody hated Iranians because the hostage situation had just happened, and and. So I left, I went to the East Coast. So it was pretty brutal for a period of time here in LA, went to the East Coast, went to school, and which was a delightful time, and then graduated and became a lawyer, 
which, you know, legal profession is routinely one of the top three, if not the top, you know, one or two of the most stressful careers. I really, and, and let me tell you, I, I did well in school. I had some great offers. I went into some great firms. Law, the culture of law, especially in the context of a big firm, is brutal. I mean, talk about hazing, right? And talk about demeaning and diminishing. And it is especially hard for people of color or probably people of color and people who come from diverse backgrounds, you know, people um, who come from LGBTQ community who, you know, who are differently abled. I mean, it's just, it's hard. And so I had a miserable few years. I was good at my job, but I mean, I felt like I was dying a little bit inside every day and then left the law and became a consultant, which was much more pleasant. I really enjoyed it. I worked with the World Bank. I worked with US Agency for International Development and companies that worked in internationally. And then, you know, I was living in New York, uh, just having this sense of doom and impending sense of something about to happen on the 10th of September, 2001. I was actually in a therapist's office saying, I have a lot of anxiety. I don't know why can you help me? And I had a prescription. And from this doctor, I was like, okay, I'm going to be great. Uh, I'm going to be fine. And then I never actually filled that prescription. The very next day, the towers fell. And the towers reminded me in a real visceral way, because I remember the burning and the smoke. And it took me back to this PTSD that I'd never processed, but probably held in my body someplace. Um, And in my heart, certainly, in my mind of Iran when things were burning down and the buses were being turned over. And then I fell into a funk for a period of time coming out of 9-11. And then my husband and I, I, I was married sometime in between, moved to the West Coast. We were in the Bay Area. We had just arrived six years to the day of not to the month of 9-11. I was diagnosed with late stage breast cancer that had been masked because it was growing in sheets. I have no family history. I was young. I I mean, there was, I had two babies. There was no reason for me to have ever expected, Um, you know, and when we asked the doctor, where would this have come from? Of course, they always say, we don't know because, you know, causation, correlation isn't causation. You don't ever really know with cancer, but they did say it has probably been there for the past six years, right? So working backwards and then remembering and connecting the dots of how many people in our neighborhoods downtown had brain cancers and lung cancers. And I think Robin Roberts lived around there. And I think she went through some type of cancer. I mean, it was just a lot. We knew the toll of 9-11. We lived it that day and those months. And then we lived it for another decade after. So it was the first time out of everything, out of all the crap that had happened to me in my life where I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to make it out of this one because the prognosis was so horrifying. And there's this exercise they have you do where they're like, imagine you're at your, you know, you're hovering over your funeral and what are people saying about you and what are you most proud of? And, and I was in some ways doing that exercise with, a, you know, the, the timeline they gave me of possible survival. I mean, it was horrifying. It was, it was just, I I felt like even with everything that I was going to do, I wasn't, I wasn't going to have a shot. And what exacerbated that, of course, was I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old, right? I mean, 
you know, I'm going to die now after a lifetime of all this crap I went through and I'm going to leave these two kids behind. And I remember, you know, it's the dark night of the soul having some real nights where I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Not being able to sleep, lost, you know, 25 pounds in a week and a half. And just doing a lot of research and looking for stories of people, survival stories, because I knew even with chemo, high dose chemo, radiation and surgery, they didn't expect me to be alive at five years. And they thought I would have a recurrence at a year, almost definitely by two years. And I began to find and collect these stories, you know, going back to this idea of people's stories of, of survival in the worst, uh, given the worst odds. And there was one thing that I hadn't done that I had always wanted to do, which was write. I'd never given myself permission to write. I was too afraid. And I'd always given myself excuses as to why I couldn't. So I began to write you know, nothing fancy. I opened a WordPress account and I just, you know, on day one, I said, I am writing this for survival. I'm writing this just for there to be some kind of narrative, you know, and I'm going to write every day for 365 days. So it's really interesting because when you put your intention on something and you show up for it every day, even if you have the tiniest amount of power, that power begins to grow, whatever you pay attention to, it begins to expand. Maybe a couple months in, I could tell people were reading, there were some editors, there were, you know, a couple of agents at five months in, people who were arriving and sort of witnessing the storytelling day after day. So a series of those stories ran, um, they were brought to the attention of an editor at um, CNN Health. She ran them for um, Breast Cancer Month. Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And then they did well. And that opened the door to other types of columns. And uh, eventually, she asked me to write a, a regular column on stress, which is how I arrived at the story of, of collecting sort of the science of stress, the history of stress, that all of our various narratives about all the aspects of life that overwhelm us. And that is why I started writing about stress. I mean, like I said, I could have spent an entire episode just on the personal stuff beyond beyond the book. Because when I hear that story and the connection to 9-11, which I think is such a, a milestone moment for many of us, not solely those who are New Yorkers, but or at least were in New York at the time, but... Really, it's one of the defining moments of our country's, you know, recent history, at the very least. And while sparing, like, my own personal 9-11 story, what what I'm really struck by is facing all of that and turning it into not just a healthy life, but also a manifestation of work, meaning something was really created out of out of these moments not just the physical book but a practice a, a you know my language like a different trajectory than the one that had been there before so you know how do you like take stock of all of that cuz hearing it, it it's quite remarkable so i'm curious what your thoughts about how you you 
you feel about all of this as you look back on it. And then I, I want to get more into stress and how it manifests and, and, and those kind of things. Yes. And by the way, all I keep thinking about is that I'm dying to hear your story. So I'm going to talk you into letting me interview you sometime because you sound like you have a rich, rich history yourself. So uh, I met, I forget his name, but I met the gentleman who had been a child soldier and came to the U.S. years later. Gosh, I can't believe I can't remember his name. He was delightful. Of course, this is a decade ago um, in my in my defense. And one of the things we bonded over, we met at this conference and I saw him downtown. He was drinking his coffee and we started chatting and, you know, and, and I told him a little bit about my story and I had heard his in a talk he gave. He was brilliant. And uh, my heart, you know, uh, his story is, is just heartrending. But I, one of the things we laughed about was how much when you're going through all of this hell as a child and even, you know, in your earlier life, that it doesn't feel like anything but normal life. And that is kind of the amazing thing about human beings is we have the capacity to become accustomed to just about anything. And so it can be our decision to create hell on earth for ourselves, but also to create, you know, heaven on earth for ourselves. And that we go through the worst kinds of things and we're like, eh, that's normal life. You know, I went through a revolution and being an orphan and, you know, a brutal job situation and 9-11 and then having cancer and recovering from that and thinking I was, all of this seems to me looking back, I realize intellectually that it's a, it's a lot for one human being, but in the moment, it felt like regular life to me the same way that it felt like regular life to this author that I had met. And he was a child soldier. And it, I mean, his story was so much more, oh my gosh, brutal. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I mean, the details. And so we get, we get used to anything. And so looking back and reflecting, I don't really think it was anything abnormal per se. I think we all live our battles in different ways and process them in different ways. So yeah, it felt normal. Well, it's, it's <laughs> suffice to say it's, I agree, but it's anything but normal. And, but I, but I think how you talked about human beings being able to, you know, ad adapt, adjust, create um, situations for ourselves and those things become somewhat normalized. I, I think stress is one of those things. And when I was reading, when I was reading the book, you had a, a portion where you talked about, um, I think it was an author from the 40s that had named it like the age of anxiety or something. And now we see a lot of stories about our technology, how it stresses us and our the nature of our work. You know, obviously we're in pandemic with COVID. Like we have all of these incredible stress stressors in our lives. And, and I think they can be, they can seem quite normal but we have to navigate a way to maybe change that normal. You know, I, I think about, um, I don't think you, re you expressly talked about this in the book, but like things like hustle culture is, is sort of one of those things where we, we applaud and congratulate, congratulate ourselves about how hard we can work. Yes. Right. So, and that becomes normal to a certain extent. Maybe it's changing now, but I'm curious 
from your perspective, how do we resist the nature to adapt to stress that is harmful? That is such a brilliant question. So if you look at stress just purely as things that are potentially giving you information about everyday life, right? Then a lot of the practices that we are engaging in, if you if you look at it as a designer, how would I take all of this data and design something for myself about my greatest opportunities, my greatest gifts, my role on this, the potential to take my gifts and really impact people in a good way, my greatest challenges, what do I love, what makes me happy, what makes me miserable, then you have the capacity on an individual level to really understand some key things about yourself. So there's the individual design of what you have the capacity to be. And then you also have to zoom out and look at all of the ways in which we are designing things and whether they are conducive for our flourishing as a people's, right? And I know we really struggle with a lot of isms in this country. And I, you know, live having lived in Iran, where it was largely homogeneous as as a, you know, as a as a nationality, as an ethnicity, and and then living in Europe, where it was largely homogeneous, although it's changed a little bit. But you know, we arrived there first here, and we are struggling. But we also, as a whole, have the capacity, if we rise to who we have the capacity to be, the gifts that we've been given, to really be at the forefront of the change that we need in this world. So it is brutal and it is dispiriting and and painful. And especially now as things are just, you know, over the past year, over the past few years, all of this infection is coming to the surface. People are learning about our history and elements of our history, things that are not pleasant to hear. And no matter how much you say, I don't want to hear that, no, 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 no. The truth is what the truth is, right? And and being able to think about that with nuance. I am an American. That is my history. I maybe just got here, you know, a few decades ago, but that also is my history. I also have a role in creating a construct that helps people thrive, that is conducive to people thriving. And the funny thing is people make this calculated decision, right? Like insurance companies, they make this calculated decision that if they say no enough times, there will be a percentage of the people who are just going to go away and don't ask for their money. And so their profits are often built. um, That is built into their strategy for how they deal with people. Somehow, a group of us have calculated that there's going that that they're going to wring every last bit of benefit out of a situation that takes you know uh, a scale and puts a foot on one side of the scale <laughs> and then you know you have the people who are benefiting from this foot being on this side of the scale and people are calculating that they can in through whatever means keep that going as long as possible now and you know, claiming I don't understand it. I don't know. This is not my history. I didn't do this. This didn't happen. I didn't do. It. I'm not. But not understanding and not thinking with nuance, right? Because we think in just these black and white shades of I'm over here, or I'm over here. But there's a lot happening here in the middle. 
And what we have to do is be willing to hear these stories, be willing to understand our stories, be willing to have grace. And for me, a lot of this is about love because you can tell who in this country is angry and is showing up with love and who in this country is angry and is showing up with no love. Like it is very clear. You look at any situation, you know who like you've got to be able to differentiate between anger. The two anger angers are not the same, right? There's a difference between, um, you know, I am angry because, you know, because I don't feel like things are going my way and I am angry because I need to get your, I need you to get your foot off my neck. I mean, those are two very different, different types of anger. And we have to be able to think in that kind of nuance. And we have to be able to listen with that kind of nuance and ultimately truly, we have to be able to show up with love. I can tell you who loves and who doesn't love. I can tell you who's motivated by selfishness and who is motivated by just a need to have equity and justice and balance, right? And I know as calculated as people have gotten about, I'm going to try to keep this going as long as possible, that that is not a sustainable game. That stress is all about sustainability on an individual level level, and at a, on a systemic level. If what you are doing is not sustainable for the whole, then at some point, the game is going to be up. And so it behooves us to show up with a curious mind, with an, a mind full of love, trying to understand and trying to design better, both systemically for the whole and for the individual. So that's kind of how I, I'm beginning to understand stress over the past few years, seeing all aspects of the of the science of stress and you know the history of stress, the 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 you know, all of these different elements of the way we show up to stress. Because we cannot run it. It is not sustainable. So it behooves us to stop and have the courage to say, okay, what is all of this telling me about what our world needs to look like? And you know, what's what's really striking about this, and you make that distinction between anger and different types of anger, because we do have a tendency, I think, as a as a society and a culture, particularly here in the US, I think, to flatten things. So there's always like a both sideism that happens where we equate one set of, of circumstances, maybe manifested as anger, maybe as not as the same as another side. And when you're talking about that stress, that oftentimes these these systems, even the ones that seem as, as if they benefit the majority population, if, if one thinks about a system like white supremacy, one would say like, oh, well, that definitely benefits white people, right? But just by the nature of the name. But yet, I feel like, yes, it advantaged some, but it hurts more, right? Because you're you're living in this false ideal that then you're trapped by this, right? And in, in the same way with misogyny and patriarchy, like they do the same thing. Like I think that's why men are dying like flies, right? Like they're trying to like live up to these crazy stress-inducing false notions of what being a man is, right? And then they keel over or they kill themselves or, you know, as, as, as you know, I, I've remarked, I, I might've said this in another show, so I apologize if I did. I might've just been a regular conversation that, you know, way before... The, the outcome of 2016, I'd read an article about white males were the were the highest, were had the highest rate of suicide 
like white males over 40. Yeah. And that that's when I knew that Trump was likely going to win, right? Like he spoke to that angry demographic that would rather kill themselves than change yes. or adapt, yes. right? So, you know, I, I'm keeping an eye on the time, but I want to, you know, what do you think about these systems that are self-perpetuating, but they seem to harm everyone to a certain degree, some more than others by their nature, but they are part of this distress, this anxiety that that is woven throughout the, the narrative of the book. I think these systems are doomed to fail. The question for me is, I have an incredibly optimistic view of the future, and especially for America. I think we have the capacity to lead at the forefront of with moral authority. I don't know whether it's in my lifetime. I hope so, given some of the things that have been happening and the ways that the, you know, the, the greater the agitation of the energetic agitation that there seems to be, I, I think we are moving towards uh, resolutions. And, you know, as Dr. King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. So I think that either way, there's going to be resolution. I don't know whether we will choose to resolve it in a way that brings us less pain versus more pain. It's also said that it's really hard to get a man to see something when his livelihood depends on him not seeing it. And so as as long as people aren't able to envision alternate realities, one in which we can all show up at the table with all of our genius, where these false myths are not perpetuated, saying that some of us are, you know, gifted, where really the reality is that many more of us are gifted and have the capacity to drive our world that much faster. I, I just, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I am bullish on the future and incredibly optimistic about the future of America. No, I, I think that's a, that's a great summation. You know, um, you know, I, I talk a lot of, about viable futures in the plural and how do we manifest those things? Cause there's not just one way of having and, and creating an inclusive future. You know, there's many things that you know, we have to use imagination for because this current way isn't necessarily the way, right? So we can't tinker on the margins. We have to wholesale change as, as much as possible. And it feels that when I was reading the book and you talk about telling ourselves different stories, and I think I have my notes here, um, building like a new cultural na- narrative as it, as it relates to stress. How does that play a role in, in that kind of outside outsized future optimism that you just described? So I think that right now, given how, you know, I, I want to, so things in, you know, in the time since I even wrote that book and since I even researched that book, as much as everyone felt so overwhelmed, it is that much louder and noisier and more fraught in the world. And so even as we show up, connected to purpose, connected to our big whys and trying to move our cultural narrative forward, right, in a way that serves us all. I also feel that one of the things that we're responsible for on a day-to-day basis is to is, is to create grace for ourselves, is to have an understanding that we are deserving of peace and silence and beauty 
And, you know, I love to go to all of these really, really beautiful places around the world because I feel like we are all entitled, not just the people who can afford to go to these gorgeous, gorgeous places, that we are all deserving of that. That is our birthright as human beings on this planet. And so I think as we begin to create a cultural narrative for ourselves individually. As a whole, we have to work to do on what it all looks like for all of us as a group, as, as brethren, as family, uh, regardless of our backgrounds. As individuals, we have a duty to have this understanding, this cultural narrative that plays out in the everyday, in the moment to moment, that our life isn't meant to be fraught and go from high stress to high stress to high stress on a daily basis, the grind that you spoke about so beautifully earlier, that it is not that we are deserving of pockets of joy, the pockets of peace, of tastes of something delicious, of a smell of a beautiful flower, of clean air and beautiful skies and fresh foods and all of these things that we are deserving of. And so as we begin to create our individual narratives for ourselves, there's a big cultural narrative. And as we begin to think about what ours look like, I really urge us to think about, you know, what makes you happy? How do you design that into your everyday? It doesn't have to be a grand gesture, although it certainly can and should be, right? I watch these Bali stories of people who are like, I left and I'm now I'm living in Bali for, you know, uh, the next few months. And I, I love those too. I love the grand gestures, but I also urge you to not see it in terms of perfection, to think of it as how much you deserve beauty and peace and the, the just the lovely things that life has to offer. And how do you begin to bring those into your life and create pockets, even as the world, you know, that is swirling and kind of agitated and, and, uh, that I think for me is the most important narrative right now. You know, I, I co-sign on that narrative. You know, it's a perfect, it's a perfect way for us to kind of move this forward. Let's find some some pockets of of happiness, whether they are grand gestures or not. You know, I, I want to get us into the final two segments of the show, um, which is off the dome and the drop. So I have four, you know, kind of rapid fire questions for you here. And, you know, they're just meant to be fun. There's no right or wrong answer. So the first one is, if you had to design your superhero costume, what would it look like? My superhero costume? Oh, my goodness. I mean, look, I'm a Star Trek, you know, fan through and through from my earliest days back in the day in Iran where it was dubbed in Farsi. So I might have to be a captain on the starship enterprise and that might be my superhero costume it's a pretty good that's a pretty good costume i'm a i'm a big trekkie myself and i always love one of my favorite you it's not even the uniform but it's an addition to the uniform is picard's jacket that he wears on top <laughs> of the uniform i love that that's like uh me too as a personal favorite of mine i'm like what is that velvet yeah, I- it's an awesome way to like Put the whole thing together. It's a it's a cool addition to Picard was just with the best. Yes. Um, yes. Well, that'll be a whole nother show if we get down into a, a Star Trek um rabbit hole. So I'm gonna resist the urge and I'm gonna go to question number two. Would you rather win a gold medal or be an astronaut? Oh, I would rather be an astronaut. My whole entire life I've dreamed of being out in space and 
watched. I mean, I just love every bit of science fiction. I give it wide pass. So I would definitely want to be an astronaut. What is your first memory of speaking in front of a group? Um, I remember going to Sunday school and being told to, you know, our version of Sunday school back in, in Iran and being told to do the presenting of a program. And I didn't really prepare at all. And uh, I remember, you know, getting up and saying something and, and, I, and, and an adult saying to my parents something like, that's example of really good parenting. <laughs> so I guess it went well. But that's my that's first a good memory. One. And, and finally, I'm going to get you out of off the dome on this one. What's something you would change in the world if you ran it? I think everything would change tomorrow if we understood that love is the magnetic force that brings all of the universe together, where you're talking about, whether you're talking about physically, whether you're talking about energetically in ways that you can't perceive. If every decision had to be made with the lens and through the lens and with an understanding of the power of love, and I'm not saying that in a sort of a corny, uh, you know, aspirational, like kumbaya way, I'm telling you that love has energy and it has a very particular kind of energy. And if you were forced and taught and everyone had to make every decision first through the lens of love, everything would happen. Everything would change within an hour. And, and I feel that way, you know, incredibly close. Like when I, you know, I live in LA now and, uh, you know, we are walking around the streets in every neighborhood, downtown, west side, east side, there are people on the sides of the road that are elderly, that are, you know, young, that are everything in between. And people, and I don't understand how we can just walk by and pretend like, I don't, I don't even understand that. I mean, I, I know that I, I don't know what to do and I'm trying in little drops in the ocean kind of way to do, but I don't, I don't, I don't think we would stand it for a minute, for a moment, if we looked at homelessness and racism and misogyny and homophobia and all of these things, if we looked at the world through the eyes of love, everything would change. Our politics, our families, our schools, everything would change. That would be my law. I agree with that. I had a, I did a, talk for a conference I used to organize, Influencer Conference, years ago. And one of our panels was called Love as Public Policy. So I'm a big believer in in what you just shared with us. So yes. I'm all we're all on team love together. So I'm going to get to the drop. It's the final segment of the show. I have a drop. I know you have a drop. You might have one and a half, maybe, if you mentioned Star Trek. But um, nonetheless, um, do you want to go first with your drop or do you want me to go first? I would love to hear your drop. I Every time you speak, I'm like, I need to sit down with this gentleman. So I would love to, I, I would love to hear yours. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go. My, my drop is actually a movie that I just watched in bits and pieces <laughs> over the course of the weekend and, and completed it last night. And I've seen it before, but I rewatched it. And here in the U.S., it's on um, HBO Max. It may not even be available internationally. And I know a lot of people listen to the show globally. But nonetheless, it's called Something the Lord Made. And it's a HBO film. 
HBO has actually a pretty good studio, and they used to do a lot of movies. They do fewer now, but nonetheless, it's it's the story about a, a guy named Vivian Thomas and his kind of really earth-shattering, life-changing type of research. And I won't give the story away, but it's it's really touching, and it really sh- talks about the capacity for people to overcome obstacles and and share their gifts with the world even when that world is trying to deny them the opportunity to share their gift in the fully realized way. So the movie is called Something the Lord Made, and I highly recommend it. And that's my drop. I love that. And I just put it on my list. And I have a couple. One is that if you have not watched Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access, or uh, I think it's called something else now, it has... I think it's Paramount Plus Paramount Plus. It has a captain named Michael Burnham, Sinequa Martin-Green, who is just, I'm, you know, going to super fangirl her if I ever see her in person. I hope I get to meet her. Is one of my favorite characters um, of recent memory. I love that show. I love it. Love it so much. I watched it once. Then I watched it with one of my kids and then the other kid. I, it just, it, it's my happy place. So definitely watch Star Trek Discovery. And then my other one is just as we talk about this idea of people having the capacity to take up their entirety of the space that they've been given, right? To be able to live up to their dreams and live up to their capacity. There is a poem that I think about all the time. It's a poem by Langston Hughes called Harlem, and it's very short. Can I read it or should I let people go see it, uh, read it themselves? Well, we're going to give it to people in the show notes okay, and perfect. let them let Please them read it themselves. Go and read Harlem by Langston Hughes. It is so powerful and so relevant to our lives today and why we're doing what we're doing. Oh, it's, that's a, I mean, I'm familiar with the works. I know that's a, a beautiful addition to folks and I do urge them to read the poem. It will be in the show notes so they can kind of click on it likely. Um, but Amanda, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I appreciate your work. I appreciate you being on the deep dive and thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you so much. And uh, you just bring so much brilliance out in the world and it is an honor. Thank you. No, oh, thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.